I used to hate prologues, and if anyone asked me how to write one, I said, don't. But as I have progressed as a writer, my thinking has evolved. And while there are big risks to writing a prologue in your fantasy novel, it also offers some unique advantages that you can't get if you just go straight to chapter one. So today I'm going to be analyzing several fantasy novels to extract the principles behind successful prologues. First, what is a prologue? A prologue is an introductory piece that comes before the rest of your novel. It usually feels distinctly separate. A prologue might take place centuries or even thousands of years before the events of chapter one, or it might take place with a couple of characters that we never see again. What percentage of fantasy novels have prologues? Well, take a guess from these percentages here on the screen. You got your number? Okay, so I looked through the top 100 most popular fantasy books on Goodreads and a whopping 44% of them have prologues. So they're quite common, especially in older works. Now, there are a lot of different prologue forms which each carry unique advantages and risks and they're all important to understand if you're thinking about writing one. So let's start by analyzing the prologue from a Game of Thrones by George R. R. Martin. In the prologue, three members of the Night's Watch, Sir Waymar Royce, Garrod, and Will, venture into the wilderness beyond the Wall, a massive ice barrier separating the Seven Kingdoms from the Unknown North. They're on a routine scouting mission to investigate some dead bodies that Will saw earlier, but when they come across the place where the bodies should be, and the bodies are missing, things begin to go awry. They encounter supernatural monsters called the Others, who kill Royce only for him to rise from the dead as their servant and wrap his fingers around Will's throat. In terms of what prologue form this is, this is a perfect example of the distant threat prologue. Essentially, you show some supernatural threat or some big monster that is lurking on the fringes of society out of notice of the main characters. And this is often done by using disposable point of view characters who you won't see again, either because they get killed by this threat or because they're just not relevant to the rest of the story. Then in chapter one, you cut back to the normal world with all of its petty politics and human interactions. But because you showed this supernatural threat, there is this sort of Damocles that is hanging above the heads of the characters. They don't know it, but you do as a reader. And that difference and that knowledge gap between you creates an element of suspense. Now we're waiting to see when the threat turns up because it's not a case of what is going to happen. It's a case of when is this going to happen? There's a few important factors to keep in mind if you use this prologue form. And it's important to get these right because otherwise you could alienate your readers. First, the characters can't feel disposable. I know I just said that often this prologue form uses disposable characters and you can dispose of your characters, but it's important that they don't feel like that from the beginning. As readers enter your story, they should feel like these characters have enough life, have enough three-dimensionality to them that they could potentially be the main character of the rest of your novel. The reason why you want that is because when you kind of can get readers attached in that way, then the twist of their death or their disposal will hit a lot harder. And also you really need to show readers early on that you have the capability as an author to develop realistic compelling, complex, three-dimensional characters from the start. Martin does this extremely well in the prologue of A Game of Thrones. He effortlessly conveys Will's backstory as a poacher who was forced to work in the Night Watch or risk losing his hand. And we also get a great sense of the dynamic between the trio. Garrett as the wise old veteran, Sir Royce the arrogant nobleman, and Will the younger member of the crew, just from their dialogue on the very first page. In terms of a practical tip to achieve this depth of characterization, often you just need to focus deeply on one key detail about a character. For instance, we get this description of Sir Royce's cloak and how luxuriant it is. And that really tells us everything we need to know about him as a character. However, while you do need to prove your ability to write good characters, you also don't want readers to get too attached to characters when you are using this type of prologue form. That's because if you're disposing of these characters here and they're never showing up again in the rest of the story, you don't want readers to be disappointed about that. You wanna strike this fine balance between having enough depth of these characters but also making it clear by the end of the prologue that we have closed off these characters, 
They are not the main people we're following in the book so that readers then feel free to open themselves up and attach themselves to your real protagonists come chapter one. And then the third consideration with this prologue form is there needs to be a really good payoff for the distant threat. Something needs to happen later in the story where it comes back in to a full circle loop and it closes that loop off in a really satisfying way. Don't tease without delivering. Now, this Game of Thrones prologue was 3,822 words long, but there's another prologue form that takes a much more compressed form. And we see this in Never Die by Rob J. Hayes. I can give you this entire prologue in under 10 seconds. Itami Cho woke to the screams of her own death. She remembered it all. I call this prologue format the quick punch. Basically, the idea here is you just give readers a really short, punchy, evocative sting that sets the tone for the rest of your story moving forward. And then you quickly move into chapter one. There's so many fantasy prologues that contain massive amounts of info dumping and world building and all these details and all these character names. So it can be really refreshing for readers when they come across a prologue that uses the quick punch form. And I bring this up to remind you that it's called creative writing for a reason. There are no rules and you can do whatever the heck you want in your prologue, as long as it hooks readers. So maybe you like the idea of a short prologue that doesn't overstay your welcome, but you want a little more meat on the bone. And that's why we're about to talk about the prologue to Dragon Mage by M.L. Spencer. This is basically a one page prologue that only lasts for 264 words. I'll read it for you now. And as I read through it, try to take note of the things that this prologue is doing well, whether that be from a tone or a world building or reader expectation standpoint. It was said the gods weep every time a dragon falls from the sky, but it wasn't true. Marath the Black fell on a cloudless, rainless day the event of his death unmourned by the divine. Only his rider remarked his fall, for he felt it like a knife thrust through his soul. Tears welled in his eyes, fed by a kind of grief most mortals, who have never known the love of a dragon, will never experience. He cast himself back from the cliff's edge with a wail of torment, sinking to his knees as his strength fled. It was not only for his soul-bound companion that he mourned, but for all the creatures of the greenwood, whom his failure had doomed. His mighty star-steel blade hung limp at his side, and his soldiers stooped beneath the crippling weight of his despair. His spirit had died along with his dragon, for no human could survive such a mortal loss. He was certainly no exception. An archon stood across the rift from him, haloed in purple flames, swathed in silken robes, a thurling snake-like body tangled about him. Against such a foe, he never stood a chance. Only an old champion, able to bend the colours of the world, could prevail against such a demon, and the last one had fallen 400 years before. He may not be a champion, but he was all they had, even if it wouldn't be enough. He couldn't defeat such a monster, but he had to die trying. Wiping his tears, he rose to face his adversary. So, did you catch what she was doing there? I call this format the teaser trailer. You're basically giving a short scene that exists purely to set the tone and establish some of the cool magic and creatures of this world. Sometimes you can almost make this into a little bit of a short story or even a very experimental, even sometimes a bit of a poetic piece. Think about the difference between a movie trailer and the actual movie itself. The trailer can often be radically different, but if it's made well, it can get you really hyped for the story to come. A teaser trailer prologue can be especially important if you aren't showing a lot of your magic or a lot of these sort of compelling aspects of your world in your very first chapter. And indeed, in Dragon Mage, we start in a little fishing village and it takes quite a while to get to the dragons. So it's important to have this prologue that promises readers, yes, there are dragons here. I didn't lie to you on the cover. They will be in this story. It also establishes this expectation that there are these crazy powerful magics in the world and that the main character is probably going to work to build up his strength to fight these demons. A good teaser trailer serves as a kind of microcosm of your whole story. It's like your story compressed in miniature. However, this is also one of the riskiest prologue forms. A lot of authors rely on a teaser trailer prologue as a crutch because their first chapter 
sucks. Maybe their first chapter doesn't really bring across those compelling aspects of their world, or it doesn't introduce the characters at their most interesting point, or maybe it's lacking in some sort of interesting conflict. And so authors think, hmm, my first chapter is probably not enough to hook readers. I'm going to put this really cool prologue in front of it to get their attention and to hook them. The problem is you cannot rely on a cool prologue to save a lame chapter one. Instead, write a chapter one that is awesome in its own regard. So awesome that it could open the book by itself. Then treat the prologue as a bonus cherry on top that elevates things even further. And while we're on the topic of dragons, my next fantasy book, Kingdom of Dragons, launches on Kickstarter on November the 2nd. The story follows a dragon rider seeking vengeance, a spy on a crusade of destruction, and two nations on the brink of war. Zora has dreamed of revenge ever since a son warden killed her father. When she saves a town from bandits alongside her fellow apprentice ranger, and discovers a dragon egg, she might finally get her chance. After dragons killed Rovan's best friend, he vowed to destroy them all. Apprenticing himself to a sun warden, he steals an egg and infiltrates Elegium, the floating city of the dragon riders, to destroy it from within. But as Zora and Rovan train their dragons, master new magic, and grow closer together, they will question everything they once knew. When the chance comes to take their vengeance, how will they deal with the weight of their past? Kingdom of Dragons launches on Kickstarter on November 2nd. If you click the link in the description down below, it will take you to a page where you can sign up to be notified as soon as it goes live so that you can be one of the first backers of the Kickstarter. I've put two years into writing this book and I think it is the absolute best thing I've written, the distillation of all the principles I talk about on this channel. So if you wanna see how I've actually applied those to writing, one of my own novels, then go ahead and check out the Kickstarter and I can't wait to see what you think. Now, the next prologue I wanna analyze comes from The Fellowship of the Ring by J.R.R. Tolkien. This prologue runs for seven and a half thousand words and contains a very, very extensive detailed history of hobbits. And it's written way more in the style of an encyclopedia than a narrative. The prologue form used here is a classic info dump and it is not something I would recommend a modern fantasy author to do. I think there is a very, very high degree of difficulty with this. Now, Tolkien, of course, is really known for the realism and the depth and the intricacy of his world building. And I find that extremely admirable. And it definitely comes across in this prologue. It definitely makes me feel like I'm reading the real history of a real place and not some made up story. And he even uses the clever device of referencing The Hobbit as part of the made up Red Book of Westmarch, this in-world text. And in the style of many earlier English writers, Tolkien uses this to give us the sensation that he is discovering this book, that it is a historical record produced by someone else. And he has just come along and said, oh, I found this thing here, have it. So there are definitely redeeming qualities to this prologue, but personally, I find it boring as hell. Yes, you might be thinking, okay, this book was published in 1954, times have changed, readers expect a lot more faster paced stuff. But some of my favorite books like The Great Gatsby or What Makes Sammy Run came out in the 1920s and the 1940s and they are fast as heck. They start in an incredibly propulsive manner. There's no slowness to them. The pacing is incredible right from the beginning. So the excuse of you have to forgive Tolkien, he was writing 70 years ago, that's why it's slow doesn't quite hold for me personally. Now, you might be thinking, okay, well, Tolkien's real focus was his world building. He was maybe less interested in the narrative aspect of the story, particularly at the start when he's trying to establish the scene and set the stage. Maybe he just wanted all these details here to give deeper lore to people who, like him, were really curious about the depth of world building one could create. But the point being is, 
When it comes to actually learning from prologues, this is not an example I would encourage you to emulate. Save these encyclopedic world building entries for an appendix at the very back of your book if you want. And in fact, many modern authors do exactly this. The problem with the classic info dumping type of prologue that Tolkien delivers is that there is no locus of interest to guide us through as a reader. There's just all these different names and places and events and historical things, but there is no one character that we can latch onto and use that character to bring ourselves into this world. As a result, there's no emotional through line and it's very difficult to connect with the story. As I was rereading through this prologue for this video, my eyes started to glaze over and I didn't even really manage to finish it. And I can imagine that many readers, even the most diehard Tolkien fans, when they are reading Lord of the Rings, are probably skipping over this prologue and just going straight to chapter one, where interesting stuff begins to happen when the story begins to actually get good. Now, you might be thinking, but Jed, I've got these incredibly rich world building details and my world is vastly different from our own. How do I bring that all across in my exposition in my prologue if you've just said that I can't info dump on you like this? Well, the prologue from Mistborn, The Final Empire by Brandon Sanderson is a great example of how to do this. We begin with a simple but incredibly evocative detail. Ash fell from the sky. Oftentimes we think as writers that we need our first sentence to be really complicated or very fancy to hook readers and impress them with our cleverness or our wordplay. But sometimes it's just as simple as picking one basic but compelling detail about your world. Now in this prologue, we are introduced to an ashen world where noblemen own plantations full of slaves. While Lord Tresting is talking to a visiting priest, he notices a slave who appears to stare at him with defiance. But when he looks again, the slave is gone. Then we shift to the slave's perspective except Kelsier isn't a slave. He's a free man who's been traveling from plantation to plantation, spreading stories of hope. At night, he talks with the slaves inside their hovel as mist begins to seep through the air outside. The slaves are terrified of the mists, believing that anyone who enters into them will go mad. But when they all hear Lord Tresting drag a screaming girl back to his manor, Kelsier strides out into the mists to save her. Then we shift to the third and final point of view character in this prologue one of the cynical, skeptical slaves who was listening to Kelsia's speech. And as he and the other slaves emerge from their quarters in the morning, they're shocked to find that Lord Tresting's manor has burnt to the ground and that the dozens of guards and soldiers inside have all been killed and that the girl has been freed and that Kelsia has done this. I call this prologue form the, how did he do that? We get a tiny hint of Kelsia's alimantic abilities when he burns tin inside his stomach to hide in his senses and identify the girl's screams, but it's a really short teasing description and as you can see here, it gives us just a tiny slice of the world's magic system, promising that there's so much more to come. And then we actually skip over the scene of Kelsia rampaging through Lord Tresting's mansion and destroying all the guards inside, which is smart because you would normally think in a prologue you're leading with action, you're trying to show the coolness of your magic system. But instead, we are left with a burning desire to know how exactly Kelsia did this. Now, I really love these type of prologues where we are introduced to the primary character from the story from the get-go, because it just means that as a reader, you're not having to do two lots of emotional investment with different characters. You're emotionally investing in someone at the start of the story and then you're actually continuing on their arc afterwards. So I think it's really strong because of that. But I think the real strength of this prologue form, the how did he do that form, is you show us the before, you show us the after, but you don't show us the during. And that just really engages a tremendous amount of suspense if you've done it right and builds curiosity within readers to continue with your story. The most important thing with your prologue is to control the promises you are presenting to the reader. And Mistborn does that superbly. We get the promise that Luthadel is a spectacular and important city. Later, 
the story takes us there. We get the promise that the injustices towards the slaves will be overcome, and that's exactly what Kelsier sets out to do in the story. We get the promise that there are multiple types of metal that you can burn for different magical abilities, and in the story, we see exactly how that unfolds. And then we also get this promise that Inquisitors are these very terrifying figures that strike fear into even the noblemen and later we see why. I won't list out every single promise that's made in this prologue, but there are so many more that are made here that are paid off later in the story or even later in the series. If you are writing a prologue, it's an incredibly useful exercise to print it out, give it to a friend, and to get them to highlight and mark every single time they see you making a promise in the prologue, or if you're accidentally setting up the wrong type of narrative by mistake. 